it's important not just to turn on the mic, but it's also important to unmute it. Uh, if you're wondering, if you're not an expert like now I am, know how to switch a mute button from on to off. We're going to be in Mark chapter 14, starting in verse 22. And as you're turning there, we're in the last 24 hours of Jesus' life. He does not have much time left on this earth. And he spends this last day organizing and preparing a Passover meal for his disciples. And he sovereignly guides it all, prepares it, sets it up. And for what reason? Why does Jesus take such an important or attribute so much importance in trying to organize this event, getting everyone into the upper room, having a place where his disciples can participate in the Passover supper. In part, we see that, we, that after, in John chapter 14 through 17, we see that Jesus has a lot of instruction left to give his disciples in between him leaving the Passover feast and then going to his cross, going towards specifically the Mount of Olives. But we see here something that the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, make a special point of showing that there is, in that last meal of Jesus, he sets up his own supper, what we call the Lord's Supper, an ordinance instituted not to remembering the Passover lamb, but to remembering himself. Let's read, starting at verse 22. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to them, and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks to them, you know, and he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. This is the reading of God's holy, inerrant word. Did you notice something there? It ended with them hymning. Sung a, a hymn is just one word there. They hymned, they psalmed, they sing. And it might not shock you, but this would have been pretty weird, abrupt way to end the Passover celebration. You see, in the Old Testament, there were many, many feasts that God's people partook of. There was a feast of booths. Feasts of first fruits, feasts of trumpets, 
the Feast of Pentecost that we see in Acts chapter 2, the Feast of Yom Kippur, which is the Day of Atonement. There was even some other feasts, like Purim, at the end of Esther, commemorating when God saved his people from destruction by Haman. And yes, there are these two feasts that we're seeing Jesus partake of with his disciples in our text. The Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Feast of the Passover. About these, we read of in Colossians 2, verse 16, that talking to the Christian church, he says, Let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or Sabbaths. Verse 17, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Colossians 2, 16 through 17. What's Paul saying here? Paul is showing here how the whole of the Old Testament functions. Imagine there's a light to my right. I'm going to be casting a shadow to my left. And if we think of that as a historical timeline of history, what we had in the Old Testament was people looking at the shadow that was being cast by the Messiah. That in those feasts, in those festivals, in those new moon celebrations, and even in their different Sabbath celebrations, everything they were doing was a picture of what God was going to accomplish in sending his son. Things that the Messiah was going to do to redeem his people. See, when we think about the Lord's Supper, what's the significance of it? To answer that question is really to answer the question, what is the gospel? And this can be, since you have notes, I know you have room on your page to write notes, you could try to even sketch down what you think it would be. If I asked you and came up after or before the service and asked you, what is the gospel? What would you say? And in answering that question, I think we get to see the importance of the Lord's Supper. That all the gospel writers attribute to this. See, what the Old Testament had was shadows. What we have is the reality. But we still have rites. We still have ceremonies and baptism and the Lord's Supper. But the difference is that our rites, our ceremonies, don't, aren't shadows, aren't not real things. They are the substance. They, instead of looking forward to who Christ would be, all of our ceremonies look back at who Christ is and what he has done. Sometimes we 
through familiarity, it sort of breeds a contempt in our heart. And I think part of that familiarity that we feel towards something like the Lord's Supper is due to just because we don't really understand it. I'm not a mechanic. But I know the first step to fixing my car would be to know how it works, know how it functions, so that I can then diagnose the problem and know how it's supposed to work and try to get it to how it's supposed to work. The same thing's true for a doctor. If a doctor, if you want to become a doctor, you need to know how the human body functions so that you can, when someone comes in, you can examine them to see how they're sick so that you can fix it. I think a lot of the familiarity that we have with the Lord's Supper is because we don't really know how it works. We don't really sometimes even know what it means. We don't know how God is using it or how he says in his word how he's supposed to use it in the lives of his people to grow them in Christ's likeness. To give us assurance of our hope in life after death with the Lord Jesus Christ. And if we can figure out what it means and what Jesus is teaching about the Lord's Supper... I think maybe the main benefit that we can gain this morning is we can see how to use it in our lives. We don't have really any questions about singing and how that's the function in the Christian life. Or hearing God's word and how that's the function in the Christian life to grow our faith. But how is the Lord's Supper supposed to work? Well, maybe the first thing that it does is that it focuses our attention on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the first thing that it does, and that's that first blank. It focuses our attention on the Lord Jesus Christ. I mentioned that there's a lot of Old Testament feasts, but this is the most important Old Testament feast. This is the one that marked the occasion of their redemption, Israel's salvation from the land of Egypt. They were in slavery for 400 years, crying out to God to save them and to deliver them. And on the eve of their deliverance, God gave them and prepared this meal for them that they were to partake. And this meal was not just something they did. It was commemorating an event of God's redemption and salvation out of the land of Egypt. They were to eat unleavened bread because they didn't have time to have it rise. They were to eat the bitter herbs that reminded them of their affliction of being in the land of Egypt. And they were to kill a lamb. And spread its blood across the doorpost of their house. That lamb, though, that they ate did not actually save them. It pointed to the event that night when God would pass over their house. That when the angel of death came into the land of Egypt to kill every firstborn son. The last plague upon the Egyptians 
a judgment came upon the land, not distinguishing people based on their ethnicity, not based on their nationality, but the angel saw the blood, distinguishing people who were covered by the blood of the lamb from those who were not. This event, event, the exodus, would be sung about, would be reminded and recalled over and over again throughout the Old Testament. And isn't it curious that it's during this meal that Jesus makes it about himself? He took the bread, unleavened bread, portraying Israel's affliction. And he said, this is my body. He took a cup of wine. And he said, this is my blood. And he said at the end of it, he makes it about himself. He says, I truly say, truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the, of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. C.S. Lewis, I think, was right in portraying our options when we look at the Lord Jesus Christ, of how we are to think of him, and why it's impossible to see him as just simply a good moral teacher. Or for that matter, to see Christianity as fundamentally about living a moral life, escaping from hell, being good people. Because Jesus here says something that would be absolutely ludicrous for anyone to say. And this isn't the first time. In Matthew, Mark chapter 2, verses 5 through 12, he claimed to be able to forgive people of their sins. When only God can forgive people's sins because people have broken God's law. He's already claimed, or will actually, after his resurrection, he will claim in Luke 24, 25 through 27, that all God's past revelation in the Old Testament spoke about him and his future sufferings. And that book, by the way, the Old Testament, was written long before he was born. And Jesus, when he says this, when he says that this is about his body and his blood, think about how many countless martyrs of the faith that he's ignoring. They're simply glossing over. Jesus is not the first person to have died for their faith and for faithfulness to God. But the thing that every previous martyr did not have was the identity of being the Messiah. There's a reason why at the very outset of Jesus' ministry, John the Baptist looks at Jesus in John chapter 1, verse 29, and says, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. This is he who I said, After me comes a man whose ranks before me, because he was before me. John, at the very outset of Jesus' ministry, recognizes him as 
the Lamb of God who deserves this high esteem and praise because he existed before he was born. Our attention needs to be focused on the Lord Jesus Christ. And why this is not a ludicrous statement to shift the meaning of the Passover festival to be about himself is because of who he is. He is the God-man. It is by his blood, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 19 says, You were ransomed from your feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. The Passover, the very centerpiece of it, was that lamb that was slain, whose blood would be put on the doorpost. You know, there's something curiously absent from the Lord's Supper or from the Passover festival, the way that the disciples partook of it. Between all since the very beginning of chapter 14, we see that the disciples go, they prepare the fast Passover, they get a room, have it ready, get the bread, get the wine, and I'm assuming here that they prepared a lamb that they were to eat. But did you notice that lamb never appears? The most central aspect of the Passover, the Lamb of God, whose blood marked salvation for the people who are under its blood. That lamb was absent. And the reason why is because Jesus was that Lamb of God. The book of Hebrews was right when it said that the blood of bulls and goats could never have taken away the sins of his people. That lamb in the Old Testament, the only reason why it had efficacy, the only reason why it resulted in the salvation of the Jews, or really Israelites, all those thousands of years ago, was because of who it pointed forward to. That's why Jesus is not audacious or crazy in making it about himself, because it was always about the Lord Jesus Christ. Which is the same reason for all the sacrifices of the Old Testament. They all, all of them, only had efficacy. The reason why people did them was because of who it pointed forward to. But it doesn't simply just point our attention to Jesus himself. It's not enough just to say, if I, give you, if I ask you the question, what is the gospel? If you just say Jesus, that's not a good enough answer. Because this is pointing us to not just our focusing on Jesus, but specifically displaying the accomplishment of our redemption. 
It displays the accomplishment of our redemption. Specifically, by portraying his death. And you can see this by just looking at the elements and how he's communicating this. He says, take, holding up the bread, this is my body. And he said this after he broke the bread, blessed the bread, broke it, and gave it to them. He said this of the cup. After he gave thanks, gave, gave, gave thanks for the cup, gave it to the disciples, and they all drank it. And he uses this language, specifically in verse 24, saying that this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Jesus here looks at this Passover festival, and he makes it about himself, and specifically about his own death. He positions himself as the covenant sacrifice. You see, in the Old Testament, covenants were cut. With Abraham in Genesis 15, the pieces of animals were cut in two. And God passed through the pieces so that the blessings could belong to Abraham and that the curse would fall on God. Or with Moses, he cut a covenant at Mount Sinai and sprinkled the blood of the on, the, on the people and the, on the altar. And specifically, Exodus 24 calls that blood that he sprinkled the blood of the covenant. And it's for a very specific reason that he's pointing to specifically his death, and his blood. He says that it is poured out for many. We've heard this language once before. In Mark chapter 10, verse 45. When he said that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, how? To give his life as a ransom for many. What's the purpose of blood? Why were the Old Testament people trained to look at blood as being necessary to be shed? Because Hebrews chapter 9 verse 22 says that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And we're giving some clarity on this in Romans 3, 23, where Paul tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all then are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Listen carefully, verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. What's that word mean, propitiation? We don't use that in everyday language. It's talking specifically about ritual language. 
about how blood functions in these sacrifices. The wages of sin is death. That's what we deserve when we break God's law. What is being accomplished when an animal dies? When its blood and life is being shed and poured out? It's dying as a substitute. It's dying to appease God's wrath. Propitiation refers to the act that averts God's wrath off us. When we break God's law, we provoke God's sense of justice. And his sense of justice and his sense of goodness is so strong that he will pay, repay every sin for what it is due. And we're told what our sins are due. The death penalty. And God in his mercy and grace does not require our death if we belong to him. But he does require the death penalty for his justice to be satisfied. And an animal represented not full payment for their sins by that killing that animal itself. But it represented what Jesus would do when he died on the cross. That it was only going to be his blood that averted God's wrath. The thing that was broken on the cross, the reason what Jesus was doing when he broke the bread, was he was showing what was going to happen to his body on our behalf. His body would be broken. And it was his body that was freely given to his disciples who follow him. You know, when we think about the cross and our salvation, the shedding of blood is still required to save us, but it's not the shedding of our blood or any animal from now on. Because God's wrath was satisfied by the shedding of the blood of his son that established in the language of Jeremiah 31 a new covenant. In Romans chapter uh, chapter 3 verse 25 explains that this blood, this redemption that was given to us in Christ is to be received by faith. That's how Paul explains it. But Jesus explains it by pointing to that lamb. Jesus explains it by pointing to that lamb to show the significance of his death on the cross. We don't have to just look to Paul's later development and explanation of Jesus' death to know what it means because Jesus explains it by showing us this picture. That his blood, that Jesus, who's the prophet, priest, and king, had also come to be the sacrifice that would actually result in the atonement 
for His people. You know, there's lots of different things that are going on in this text. And I've heard people say, in talking about this meal, looking at the Mishnah to see how this meal would have went, at certain points when the father would speak, at what points would the children ask a question, how many cups of wine and which cup of wine is Jesus drinking here? The reality is, is that the Mishnah that we have was written hundreds of years after Jesus, after this event here. So when we look at this event and look at this Lord's Supper, if we're going to understand what the cup is that he drank and what his broken body meant, we have to go to the scripture to see what it is. And we see the cup that he drank. We're told in Psalm 116 that part of the salvation we have is that we've been given the cup of blessing. But how is that possible for sinners to drink the cup of blessing? It's because Jesus drank a different cup in Gethsemane. He, when looking forward to his death on the cross, he said, Father, take away this cup from me. Referring to his death. This cup has already been mentioned in Mark chapter 10, when he's explaining to his disciples, when they ask to be the greatest in the kingdom of God, they have no idea what they're asking, because what it looks like to be the greatest in the kingdom of God is to suffer and die. And he says, are you able to be baptized with the baptism which I'm going to have? Are you able to drink from the cup from which I will drink? And the answer to that is no. You see, Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath, had his body broken because he was enduring God's curse so that we might enjoy God's blessing. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says that for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Maybe the one other aspect of this being a covenant meal displaying our redemption that we shouldn't just gloss over is that everyone in this room partook of it. Jesus is the one who blessed the food. The reason why it's a blessing to us is because it comes from Jesus' hand. He blessed it when he gave it to us. The redemption that he's picturing of his broken body and his spilt blood, it's not something that the disciples have to earn. It's something that Jesus, with his hand, freely gives to them. This covenant meal, as all covenant meals, happen in the context of the people of God who are called to faith in the promises that are being pictured in it. And lastly, 
they all drink of it and they all eat of it. You know, it's when he talks about this, the other Matthew and Luke, when it records this institution, we see that he's actually instituting a perpetual ordinance just like the Passover because after each time he gives the bread and gives the wine, he says, do this in remembrance of me. And I think we all pretty much got that. We got that down packed. That this is a memorial of his death. And this aspect is easiest to understand because it's something that we can do. It's something that we can do in our own power. We all know how to remember past events. But what kind of eating and drinking that leads to salvation is Jesus talking about here? There's an aspect of remembrance. But I would point you to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. Jesus tells them after doing, giving the food to the 5,000, he explains to them in verse 35 of John chapter 6, that I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, but whoever believes in me shall never thirst. He says that I am the bread that came down from heaven. He says that anyone, in verse 51, anyone that eats of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Verse 53, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Verse 55, For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. That's some complicated language, isn't it? What's Jesus talking about here? The kind of food and the kind of drink he's talking about is not physical food, is not physical drink. We don't get the benefits of redemption just by merely participating in the rituals that he's given us to remember his death. The reality of his blood poured out for our sins and his body broken on our behalf becomes, in our re becomes a reality in our hearts when we embrace it in faith, when we embrace the Savior in faith. The type of feeding that he called his disciples to was one which believed on him, rested upon him as their only hope in life and in death. The type of drinking he called his disciples to was one in which looked with the eyes of faith to the blood of Christ to be the only source of life that can pay for our sins this is why 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 16 says that the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not participation or fellowship in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not participation 
in the body of Christ. What we are having displayed here is full redemption. Full redemption that comes as a result of Jesus' death on the cross, which becomes a reality in our hearts by faith and by faith alone. And the last thing that he does when he's looking at this, when he gives this to his disciples in this institution of the Lord's Supper, is he makes it just as forward-looking as it is backward-looking. He makes it just as forward-looking as it is backward-looking. He says, truly I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Part of why we remember our past redemption on the cross is because that redemption on the cross gives us assurance and hope for life after death, for life with Jesus. And just as sure as Jesus' resurrection was from the dead, so is it just as sure that we will be raised from the dead. We're given this picture in Revelation 19 of the wedding feast of the Lamb, where one day when He comes back and saves His people, we will rejoice, exult, and give Him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, pure and bright. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. You know, there's a certain sense in which we look at the supper and we eat this. We're just getting a little bit of wine. We're just getting a little bit of bread. And Jesus, instead of partaking of the lamb, he cuts it short and leaves and sings a hymn. If the Mishnah is correct, he sang Psalms 115 through 118. But he did cut it short. See, the Lord's Supper, the fact that it's forward-looking... The fact that we're just getting morsels to eat should remind us of the incompleteness of the Christian life. That we have something to look forward to. He leaves a meal that is unfinished. And we look forward to the final day of our redemption. So what's the answer to that question? What's the significance of the Lord's Supper? Why should it not be something that we start to have contempt to because we're familiar with it? Because the Lord's Supper portrays the gospel. It portrays our only hope in life and death is Jesus Christ and Him crucified. But we often grow bored of that. We want the gospel to be something more than just our redemption from sin. Than just 
the redemption that Jesus Christ purchased us from the cross. But to remove this and make this not the center point, the death of Jesus, not the center point of the Christian faith, is to remove the very heartbeat of Christianity. You see, the heart of Christianity and what's being displayed in the supper is that Christianity is about a divine rescue mission. God is the one who comes to save. We might live for God as a result, out of a life of thanksgiving for the blessing he's given to us, but being blessed by God is not the good news of Christianity. The good news of Christianity is not to be found in the benefits Christ gives us, but in Christ himself and what he has done for us. The good news that we preach to the world is news not of how God has transformed my life, not the good life I now live, but the good news of Christianity is what God has done to rescue sinners on the cross. And he invites all to come to the table because he hasn't come to bring judgment yet. And we as Christians who eat at this table, we wait and long to be in the bodily presence of Jesus Christ, content now with eating with him in spirit and in truth. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us this supper. Lord, we saw what happened to those in the Old Testament who did not have the blood of the Passover lamb over the doorpost of their household. God did not make distinction between Jew and Gentile in that he made a distinction between those who had the blood covering their sins and those who did not. Lord, if that is true for them, that those who did not have the doorpost covered with blood suffered death, how much more will happen to us if we do not have the blood of Christ covering our lives, the doorpost of our house that we seek safety in. Lord, may we not only seek safety for ourselves in Jesus Christ and what he has done for us, but may we point others also. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. He has achieved not only our redemption, but all who would call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And Lord, we thank you that this supper was given to the disciples as a gift. And Lord, may we never underestimate the value of that gift. May we never become content or too familiar with the awe-inspiring, amazing fact that God sent his son to die on the cross for our sins, who was innocent and spotless and was the only person in human history who did not deserve his death. 
Lord, and may we continue to grow in our understanding and grow in our all of that day by day. And that it, the result in our life would be one of worship. Worshiping Jesus for who he is and what he has done. It's in Jesus Christ's name that we pray. Amen.